it's tough and it's it's hard not to take it personally because you know we all we all went into this because we love animals i mean if if we didn't we could be making far more money doing something else um usually the way i would handle that is just say well i'm sorry you feel that way um here's you know let me explain why each charge is on here and why we need to do that thing that was dr jamie fryer on this week's episode of the people of veterinary medicine podcast the people of veterinary medicine brought to you by luca veterinary data security Greetings, DVMs, practice managers, vet techs, support staff, veterinary consultants, and podcast enthusiasts. Welcome or welcome back. In this episode, we are talking with Dr. Jamie Fryer, and she works for Wisdom Panel, which is a DNA genetics company. I don't know how what the proper term is, but I'm actually really excited. Uh, some of you may know if you follow me on LinkedIn that uh, we did lose the Yorkies earlier this year, which I've talked about on the podcast, and you're probably sick of hearing about it. Uh, but we did get a new dog, and we got a new dog, Odin, and he is supposed to be a Woodle, so he's like a designer poodle. So he's supposed to be a Wheaton Terrier poodle mix. So we will find out if the breeder actually gave us the dog we are supposed to get. So I'm really excited about that. Um, really interested. They're doing some really cool stuff. Uh, I think wisdom panel has an accuracy of down to like one percent or something like that so like 99 percent accurate and they do a bunch of like the health testing stuff and they have people from 23andme and uh, the other genetics company that they've kind of brought over to help them on the animal side so really exciting but what i think is unique about this story with jamie now that she's working with the wisdom panel is that kind of like the issue that i've talked a lot about in vet med where i'm really fascinated with the vet tech conversation and how vet techs are generally in the industry for about four years before they leave the industry entirely and in this case jamie worked for a large corporate group Bainfield, and after about five years she got kind of burnt out and she had to figure out she knew she needed a change and needed something else to do and she was able to stay within vet med which i think is unique can we talk a little bit about um, how, you know, I get questions a lot from people, from practice managers and other people in the industry, like, hey, I think I need to get out of general practice. Do you have any suggestions of how I could stay in the industry? So people really do love the industry, uh, but sometimes they just need a change. And in this case, Jamie found a change working in genetics. And it's really interesting to hear kind of all the details of the genetics and the struggles of, you know, being in general practice and being a new doctor and, yeah, just all that stuff. So with that being said, I really think you're going to enjoy this episode. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. But first, this episode is brought to you by Luca Veterinary Data Security. We've heard a lot about all these ransomware attacks. So what does that mean for your practice? Did you know that on average, about two and a half hospitals get hit per week with some sort of cyber attack? The good news is, is it doesn't have to be costly or complicated to protect your hospital. All you have to do is give us a call. So go to www.luca.vet, look for the schedule your free consultation button and get your free call scheduled today to see how we can help you protect your practice. There we go. Now I think we're cloud enabled. <laughs> I don't have to worry about saving my local machine. All right. Well, thank you for uh, taking time out of your day to chat with me. Yeah. And so uh, with all these podcasts, I have one kind of can question I always like to start with, and that's, you know, how did you get involved in veterinary medicine? Sorry, one sec, just pausing my notifications. Uh, <laughs> no, no problem. Um, oh man, there's a lot of things that I did that that got me involved in vet med. Um, I have had a dog crush since I was a little kid. Um, I've always been interested in dogs, always wanted to have dogs at home. Um, and actually, when I was in grade school, I wanted to be an ophthalmologist, which is <laughs> kind of an interesting uh, profession for an 11-year-old to choose for themselves. But um, so I was always interested in science and things. Um, and then when I was in college, I did a lot of things that um, were just things that I thought were fun. So, um, you know, taking lots of zoology classes, lots of biology classes. Uh, I interned at the zoo for a while. I did some research. Um, so things like that were interesting to me. And then when I graduated and I was working at um, OHSU doing some lab work, lab bench stuff, and um, I was thinking, 
you know, there has to be something more interesting I can do than pipette things into tubes for the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> so I gravitated towards vet med. And at the time I thought that I would be, um, I would be everyone's hero for their small exotic pets. And I would, you know, serve this underserved population. Um, although when I graduated school, I, I figured that I know a lot about dogs and cats and less about these other guys. Let's start small here. Let's start with something I know and we can work our way out. So, so interesting, you know, you mentioned you had this like dog crush. It's kind of fascinating because for me, I can really relate to that because we lost our, we lost our last dog or second dog, I guess. Technically, he was the first one because uh, we got him first, but he was the last one to go. We had two, we had two Yorkies for a while. It's almost six, 16 years, but we lost uh, a trade. He was the last one. That we left. Yeah. Um, in March of this year. Mm-hmm. And so we have kind of been dogless for the last I don't know, three months or so, almost four months. And we actually just got a new dog. And there's like this, like when you've had a dog that's be, that's been a part of your life for so long and then you go dogless and then you, you get a new dog. There's like this weird, like, there's a weird connection. Like there's this weird human animal bond that like is really hard to describe. And like, mm-hmm. I really noticed it once he came back. So um, is that kind of what you're talking about? Like this unique connection to animals when you're younger and do you still have pets now? Yeah. Um, that, that is pretty much what I'm talking about. Like when I was younger, if I didn't have a dog, I was every dog on the street. I was like, Oh, I want to pet that dog. Oh, I want to pet that dog. <laughs> <laughs> and then having my own dog so it settles it down a little bit. Um, I do actually have two dogs right now. I have two Shelties. I have a, a girl named Reggie and a boy named Aitlin. Oh, awesome. Yeah, those are great. I, I always get the, the Shelties kind of look like many Australian shepherds kind of. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I kind of always get a mix. I'm like, Oh, is that, Oh no, it's a Sheltie. Cause they don't they have like a little bit more of a narrower nose and mm-hmm. kind of like a, like a prettier coat, I would say, you know, it's almost like a, they have a lot of hair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you talk about this idea of going to vet school and not really, you know, learning a whole lot about dogs and cats, which I'm assuming primarily is the function because those pets dominate the vet space would be my guess. So, yeah. but yet you wanted to serve this like underserved exotic population so what was it like coming out of vet school and being like, well, I didn't really learn much about these exotics, even though technically you're licensed. So I'm assuming you could treat these other animals, mm-hmm. but yet having this like fear or maybe insecurity or whatever you want to label, however you want to label it, or, you know, maybe you can kind of give me some insight on what that fear was like. Cause then you're like, well, maybe I should focus on dogs and cats first. Right. I, I think it's a couple of things. So, I knew I, I, you know, I would take, if there are electives available on these guys, I would take them. So I was always taking, you know, small mammal electives and lizard electives and things like that. Um, so I think I knew enough to know how dangerous you can be if you don't really know what you're doing. Um, they have very specialized medical needs and I had a rabbit. So, um, you know, I know it's, it's very easy to, but these animals, they really like to get pushed in the direction of not doing better as opposed to doing better. So you really have to know what you're doing. You really have to be careful. And I just wasn't, I didn't feel responsible for that at that point in time. Um, I, I wanted to kind of develop my clinical skills on breeds that I felt more comfortable with, like the cat and dog. So as somebody who's not familiar with, you know, I have conversations about dogs all the time with vets and, you know, I, I barely know anything, but I at least feel immersed enough with within the, the veterinary industry and culture to be able to at least have a semi-coherent conversation when it comes to the medical treatment. Um, so when you talk about this idea of like rabbits wanting to be pushed in like kind of the wrong, wrong direction, what do you mean by that? They have very specific, so you can't just treat a rabbit like it's a little cat or something. So for example, rabbits will have... Um, something that they call GI stasis. And it means that their GI tract is basically shutting down. So they're not producing um, the amount of poop they're supposed to be. They stop eating a lot of the times. Um, And there's really specific treatments for this. There's, you know, there's motility enhancers, fluids, pain medication, things like that. You know, if you just, a rabbit not eating for a day is an emergency. It's not, you know, a cat or a dog not eating for a day, eh, you know, Maybe they had an off day. 
we'll see what happens tomorrow. But these, the rabbits and, and the small guys, you got to get them in, you got to take care of them and you, you've got to be, you know, really on top of them because if they don't have just the right um, treatment and the right um, situation, then they're not going to get better. Now I'm intrigued. So like, why is it that like in this case, like, you know, I mean, I think technically they say like in the human side, there's a lot of people talking now about the benefits of fasting for a minimum of three days and how it kind of cleans the body up and it really induces apoptosis and all these kind of overall health benefits. But yet with a rabbit, not to eat for a day is kind of a major issue. Why, why is that? It's the way their GI system is designed. It's designed completely different than ours is and their sequel fermenters. So what happens and uh, apologies, this is going to be a little gross for a second. Yeah, yeah, so <laughs> they produce two different kinds of feces. So the one type is what they call their sequel pellets. So those are like little and brown and smelly and sticky and kind of in a clump usually. Mm. And they eat those, they re-ingest those so that they can digest just that more amount of nutrition from the food that they eat since they're eating, you know, they're eating hay mostly and grass. So they're kind of putting it through a second pace to, to get all the nutrients out before then they produce their regular fecal pellets, which is what um, you see around if, if you have a rabbit. Really interesting. I did not know that. That is, that's fascinating. And yeah, I mean, obviously it's, I mean, it's part of how they function. So like kind of re-ingesting this poop for lack of a better term, isn't unhealthy. <laughs> that's yeah, crazy. Wow. I, yeah. And it, there's probably veterinarians who are listening to this. who are like, dude, we know this. Like, why are you talking about this? But I don't care. I'm insane. I'm fascinated by it. I think it's really interesting. I never thought about that. So it's, kind it's, of on the, it's gross, but it's neat. It's, you know, yeah. everybody's got their own system. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, think about it from a survival standpoint. If we had figured that out, you know, it sounds disgusting, but if you were like <laughs> dropped in the Antarctic somewhere, at least you'd have something, you know, a rabbit would, a rabbit would be all right for at least a day. Uh, um, so let's talk about your time at the zoo. What was it like working within, within a zoo and working with exotics? It was really neat. So I worked in what they called waters. So I was with um, the sea otters and the um, sea lions. We had a, an elephant seal for a while. She didn't live for very long, unfortunately. She was adorable though. Um, and the tide pool, you know, where they have the cool tide pool exhibit, or at least they do um, in Oregon, and um, the bears too, so polar bears. So um, I really enjoyed, you know, getting to be out on the beach when we were weighing them and um, watching them be trained. And, you know, they're trained to do things like get up on the scale and get their teeth brushed and open their mouths and um, really neat animals. Uh, the polar bears were really impressive to see up close. Um, and I found out quickly that there's a reason why zookeepers check their locks every five seconds when they're walking down the aisle, um, because they can come up right next to the door. I had at one point, um, I think we were wheeling a, or, or rolling a big ball past one of the doors. Cause we were setting up the, um, exhibit for enrichment for them. And, um, that one of the polar bears got kind of excited by the ball and just kind of stood up. And I looked up at him and he was just absolutely enormous. And he's about, you know, maybe five feet away from me. And I'm just like, all right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would be, yeah, that would be crazy. That would be crazy. So, I mean, what else, like, what was your kind of day-to-day -day life like at the zoo? I did, um, I would feed the uh, tide pool and the, um, the, the fish and I would test water chemistries for everybody, um, make sure, you know, clean out some of the filtration system for the tide pool, um, assist with whatever was going on, whether it be a training or um, feeding of the mammals. And um, I did a couple other things like we went on um, invertebrate collection trips to bring back some animals for the zoo. And, um, and I had my own little friends that I kept in the back, little hermit crabs that I took care of. <laughs> <laughs> you so, had your own little mini zoo within the zoo. <laughs> I did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, what is it like? I don't mean a lot of people. You know, I've met a lot of. I think I've met a few uh, veterinarians now that have done some sort of like internship or work at a zoo. Is it hard to get like a full time job 
at a zoo being a like a staff veterinarian? Extremely hard. Yeah, there's usually one or only one or two vets at a zoo, um, and they tend to stick around for a while. So it's it's one of those. If you really want to be a zoo vet, you kind of wait until someone leaves their job and then you apply for that job, regardless of where it is or what specialty it is or anything. Um, you just kind of have to go to where the jobs are. So the um, zookeeping and zoo med is, is tough to break into. So the other, this is another interesting question being that you were on the inside. So um, how do I, how do I phrase this question? So and not to put myself on a pedestal because that's not the reason I'm, but it provides interesting context. So um, I got to a point where I decided consuming animal, animal products wasn't the best thing health wise for me. I just, I felt better not consuming them. The less I ate of them, the harder I could train for this bike race. And so because of that, I came, became primarily plant-based. I don't want to use the V word because <laughs> it's very, very politically charged. And, uh, your own dietary choices are, are your own your own decision and what whatever makes you feel best. But with that being said, they're a part of different communities that talk about different recipes and ones and stuff like that. And one t- there was a, a recent post that came about that was like talking about like how terrible zoos are and um you know like it's like animal abuse and all this stuff. And there's there's that whole side of it, right? Like the whole media side of it. So what's it like? actually at the zoo, like being on the inside and looking at animal where the welfare of the animals and, and actually coming from like a medical standpoint, I mean, what's your position as far as like zoos and, and animals? The people that I've met working at the zoo are some of the kindest people. They, they really care about each and every animal that is under their watch. Um, Every animal gets some kind of enrichment. Some animals get let out of their cage and, and wandered around the zoo sometimes during the day just for their own fun. Um, that you know, keepers cry when their animals die. It's it's not it's not a mercenary thing. You know, they're very very. These are animal people. They're they're very. They've dedicated their lives to taking care of these animals. I've never seen a single one of the keepers do anything that was even remotely wrong towards an animal um they're they're very they're interested in conservation and they have the animals that are in the zoo are generally not animals that would live in the wild they're not animals that would survive so they're taking care of these animals and they're educating the public about them in the hopes that you know someday maybe we don't make them all extinct (laughs) so they're they're really you know they're they're doing their best to take care of the animals that they have and that they love, and then also educate the public and um, advocate for the animals too. So to me, the zoos are doing a good thing. And I, I don't think that um, I, I've never quite seen that, that side of things. I have have heard that before, but I've never quite felt that that was fair. Yeah. It's interesting. I think I'm on the same field as you. I mean, from my own Granted, I haven't, I've never seen behind the scenes, right? So I don't know what's going on behind closed doors, but I've always envisioned it like, yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of animals like, A, you wouldn't get exposure to otherwise, right? And mm-hmm. yeah, there's a way to kind of like help educate the importance of not destroying nat- natural habitats because then once you kind of, you know, out of sight, out of mind, right? Mm-hmm. So I've always thought like, well, like if, you, yeah, if you go to a zoo and then you see a polar bear, you might start thinking twice about like, oh, well, you know, like global warming's just destroying the Arctic environments and this is directly affecting the polar bears. You know, what are some small changes I can make to help improve this? And so, you know, like, because now you've seen them, you've had a connection with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that may, and, you know, making a generalization and they, that may not happen for everybody. I think, but I think you're right that there is this idea of education and if we're doing we're doing right by the animals, at least treating them well and giving them a good home, you know? Yeah. And it kind of, it also makes me think of like, you know, like the, the homeless person debate, you know, like sometimes you see a lot of homeless people with dogs and I'm like, I don't know, like the, but the dog looks happy and well cared for and probably more care for, you know, better taking the person's taking better care of the dog than they are themselves. And it's, you know, it's kind of back to this like human animal interaction and, yeah, it's fascinating. 
Yeah. I don't know where I'm going with that, but yeah, <laughs> as I think about it out loud, it's, yeah, it's an interesting question. I've never really had an opinion. So it's, it's interesting to, to hear somebody on the inside. So after you graduate, what do you do? So you decide that you want to go in, you know, you're like, well, you know, I think I'm going to focus on dogs and cats first. So where do you go after you graduate? What was your first job? I, um, I had done a couple years of, um, senior externships or not senior. I'd, I'd done a couple of years of summer externships with, um, Banfield. And so I was familiar with the way they practice medicine. And, um, a lot of my friends were scared of Banfield because they thought, um, they're going to tell me how to practice medicine and I don't have my own choices, but I knew that wasn't the case. So, um, I ended up working for Banfield after I graduated. Um, we had a hospital that I started with for a few years and then I went and opened a brand new freestanding Banfield, um, where I worked for a couple of years and, um, did, you know, saw a lot of stuff and had a lot of interesting patients and got, you know, made a lot of development in my um, medical skills, but then I just kind of decided that I was looking for something else, looking for a change. So let's, yeah. So you said something interesting there, which I've heard a lot, like as I've gone to like the different conferences, especially the ones that are involved in like around technology, like the veterinary innovation summit or any of these conferences and that there's this conversation around Banfield that what I've heard kind of the general, you, you made the state, I guess where I'm going with this is you made the statement that you had some friends that were like, you're not going to really be able to practice medicine. They're going to kind of tell you what to do, but you said you'd been around them so that you knew that that necessarily wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. And my experience with that conversation has been in the technology realm that some new doctors really enjoy it because they have Banfield has kind of centralized their practice management system for lack of a better term. So they have a lot of data on a lot of different animals and a lot of different treatment plans. So there's a lot of data there to really give you a guided explanation, you know, kind of a guided, some guidance in your treatment plans and how you may treat a case and you can put in um, certain conditions and it'll kind of help, help better guide you. So can you, when you say that, so what I guess then the other side of that is I've heard that a lot of it's worked there for like five years and then they're like, nah, I kind of feel like I've lost the art of medicine a little bit and they want to get into private practice and kind of get away from this, this kind of more structured or guided approach with a lot of data. But you said that you had also heard that, but you knew that that wasn't the case. So can you elaborate a little bit on that, on how they let you practice medicine? Yeah. So what people think, or at least this is the impression I had gotten from 90% of my classmates was that, um, you know, if you diagnose a pet with something, then you go into the computer and you put in that diagnosis and then you have to do everything it says that, you know, it'll give you this big list of stuff you can do and you have to do all of it. Um, and that's just not how I operated. And that's not how, um, most of the vets I knew operated, you know, I would have, gastroenteritis, you know, and I would diagnose that, but then instead of using their kind of laundry list of, of things, um, diagnostics to use, I would say, okay, here's what usually works for me. And here's what I'm going to do because this dog's clinical symptoms are a little bit different than the traditional gastroenteritis. So I'm going to order up X, Y, and Z. That's not, no one at Banfield is going to stop you from doing that. They only want to make sure that you're practicing the best medicine that you can. So there are, if you need resources to lean back on, especially as you start, it's great for, it's great for that because there are some on the computer, they have um, some published resources for Banfield internal use. And then um, most new vets that start out have kind of a mentor vet that they can um, bounce questions off of and things. So it's actually a pretty good program for a beginning vet. Um, cause you feel, you don't feel as much like you've just been pushed out of the nest on, on your own. Yeah, and exactly. You get a little bit more, it kind of to the level you want, you know, how, how comfortable are you? Do you want to really, um, you know, do all the recommended things at first to see how that feels? Or do you just want to jump in and do what you think you need to do? So it's very individual and, and every band field is only as good as the vets and staff that work there. 
So there's also been a big conversation, and you just mentioned it, it, about the idea of like mentorship for new vets that are coming out of school and helping them kind of get get um, involved. And interesting, I interviewed a vet student, and she talked about doing, I'm not sure what the technical term is, like where you, uh, you know, you actually go like clinical work, like you actually go out and work at a hospital. And there was a hospital that she was working at while she was finishing up, I think her third year, she's a fourth year student this year. Um that like the hospital, she, like she loved it because she was like, the hospital really took us in. And they're like, if there's anything you want to learn or do or try, like really let us know. And it made her really, you could tell it made her really excited and really looking forward to getting out and getting involved in a hospital where like there was this kind of guidance and mentorship from the, like the practice owners or like the other associate doctors. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that Banfield has that. So, I mean, being such a large network of hospitals, how does that work? I mean, um, do you have somebody at the hospital or is there just like, is there like a mentor hotline you can call up? How does it work to kind of help you get advice from some more senior uh, veterinarians in the industry? Well, if you do need um, like internal medicine advice or specialty advice um, that you can call Banfield CTS and, and they'll help you put that together. Um, but on a more individual hospital level, usually at least, at least when I started, I'm not sure if they're still doing it quite the same, but um, they assigned me to a hospital based on the mentor that they had chosen for me. So they said, okay, you're Aletha, you're, you're, her name is Aletha. Your mentor Aletha is going to, uh, she worked at the Hillsborough hospital. So you can, you know, go work there. And then um, I would work the same shifts that she did for the most part. And um she would be available for, you know, if I needed another look at a case or if I wanted to come out and say, I was thinking about doing this treatment plan. What do you think? You know, she was always kind of there to lend an ear. So what's so, that like? What What's that like being a new veterinarian? Like I would be really, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking like my own personal experience. Like if terrifying. I, had, yeah, yeah. Like if I had graduated, but I think terrifying from two aspects, right? Because you you walk it like you walk in the room, you're the expert, right? So now you have a patient on the other side of the table, there's something going on and you're new. And so you don't know. And you're like, well, I should really go check with them. But then like, you don't want to like lose street cred or whatever, however you want with, with the patient, like in the room and the client specifically, like the pet parent. So how did you navigate or for you, did you just not care? You know, like am I <laughs> interjecting my own insecurities into your into your experience, you know, or for you, were you like, whatever, I'm just going to go get this other doctor because I know it's the best thing to do. So in those situations where you weren't really sure and you needed help, how did you bring in that other doctor into the exam? We get pretty good at that. That's that's one of our first sneaky skills we learn after we graduate. Is um, so you're not always going to know what's going on. You know, sometimes you might need to run in the other room and grab a reference book and look something up. Um, sometimes you're going to need to have a little convo with your mentor doctor. So um, usually what I would do is I would do my exam and, you know, make note of any abnormalities. And then I would um, talk to the owner and get, you know, all the history and everything, all the questions that I needed answered. And then um, I would say, okay, well, I'm going to go back and I'm going to work up a treatment plan. And then I would go in the back and if I needed to do a couple little research bits before I worked up the treatment plan, you know, they were none the wiser necessarily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I could make sure that I was, you know, doing them, doing exactly what I wanted for the dog. Yeah. So I guess the other, like if you needed the other doctor to kind of get their hands physically on the patient, would you just be like, yeah, um, I'm going to take them in the back in the treatment area and run this test real quick. And just, and then was that kind of the, was that the kind of the cover to be like, Hey, Dr. Elise, I think that's you said her name. Can you take a look at this? Am I seeing the right thing? Or, you know, or would you just bring them in the exam room or how would that work? We usually prefer to bring the pets into the back if we're doing anything that could look weird to the owners. Um, I don't think it's wrong to bring another vet in. Um, sometimes things are weird and you just want a second opinion. And personally for myself, if a doctor says, you know, this is a little unusual, I would like another doctor to look at it's okay <laughs> you know? yeah you're right yeah exactly i mean yeah i mean hearing you think about it out loud i mean that's a great point right because if i was on the other side of the table i'd be like 
oh, awesome. Like they're taking this serious, you know, like they're, they want to make sure they're doing the right thing. And I wouldn't even, you know, think the wiser, but I guess like from my, from my own perspective, you know, it has been a, like a learning process to, to be able to say like, you know, when it comes to cybersecurity or anything in technology to sometimes make, you know, I just don't know. I'm not sure, you know, I, I can't know everything. And to, I think it is definitely a skill and it's a skill I've had to develop to be like, you know, I just don't know the answer to that and to be okay with that. And sometimes actually I found that it, you know, now that I'm thinking about that out loud and it gives you better credibility with the person on the other mm-hmm. side of the table and, you know, cause they're, you're being honest with them and then they they'll trust you a little bit more. So yeah, maybe right. I'm a little overthinking it a little bit. Well, See, especially that- if you say, you know, I'm not really sure off the top of my head, but let me go find out for you. And then, you know, then they know that, that you still want to help them, but you're also being honest with them. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that helps, especially because you, in order to get that compliance, right. With the pet parent, you really have to build trust with them and they, you know, and to know that you're just trying to do its best. And there's this whole conversation about price and all that stuff in vet med, which is a whole nother conversation. And so when things can get expensive, it, it's, uh, you know, a lot of times it's a conversation of like, Hey, this isn't just about spending money. This is about really trying to do the right thing here. And in building that trust, I think is really important. So you had talked about, you know, being at Banfield for about, was it about five years that you were mm-hmm. there? And then you kind of decided that you needed a change. So what was like the, what was the catalyst for you to kind of say, ah, you know, I need to do something different other than, than practicing med, you know, directly practicing medicine, I guess, in a clinical, in a, practice setting um, and make a change? What was There were a lot of little things, I think, that added up. Um, the work-life balance isn't great in vet med in general. Um, you know, you're working, you might be working shorter weeks, maybe you're working four days, but they're going to be big days, <laughs> 14-hour days. Sometimes you don't get lunch. Sometimes you don't get to go to the bathroom. You know, you're working weekends, you're working holidays. You don't see your significant other. Um, so that can be tough. Um, a lot of times people don't, um, I, I don't want to make it sound like all that people that come to the vet are terrible because there are some lovely, lovely people that bring in their animals. But some people are just you know, they'll get angry and say, you don't love animals because mm-hmm. you won't do this for free or whatever. They, um, it, it's very emotional. Uh, you know, it's, you're talking about their pet and then you're bringing money into it. And so people get angry, um, and they take it out on the staff, unfortunately, a lot of the time, which is tough. Um, you know, you see all these cases, some of them are sad, some of them you feel like you could have won if you, the owners would have pushed a little harder, have a little bit more money. Um, sometimes there's days where you're just not staffed enough for what you've got, and so you feel like you're not doing your best for, for each patient, and that is really, that's not motivating, you know. Um, just things like that, that after a while, I was like, I'm, you know, I need, I need something more. I think there's something else that I need to be doing with myself, um, aside from clinical practice. And I always enjoyed the sort of research and behind the scenes aspect of things anyway. So it seemed like a good fit. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so what's, what's interesting there is you, you know, it was kind of a good segue from what you're talking about before and this idea of, of price structure and, and dealing with pet parents and this, and what's ironic is, um, there's this, uh, there's this lady up in, uh, her name's Alex. She's a certified vet tech and she works up in Canada and she's very active in the community and she writes a lot of articles and she's like working on this new piece for a, a vet med publication about this whole conversation about price. And what's interesting is she quoted exactly what you had said. And I had never, I mean, because I'm not on the other side of the other side of the table, I never really, ha- I've never experienced that, but to think like, you know, like you don't love animals because you won't do this for free. Like, yeah, I mean, that's like, I'm just not sure what mindset people have. And it obviously is something that is said all the time because you've said it. And then I just saw somebody else who's like on the other side of the country in, an, I've in had another a country multiple times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So obviously it's, it's a reality. And how do you, I mean, when somebody says that to you and especially, you know, talking earlier, you talked about how you were, you know, you had like a dog crush, like you, you know, you love, you've always loved animals. So 
how do you manage it? Like, how do you, how would you manage that kind of conversation or stress or just like me, I would be so frustrated. I would like have to walk out of the room. I'd be like, dude, you don't get it. But yeah. How did you handle it? It's tough. And it's, it's hard not to take it personally because you know, we all, we all went into this because we love animals. I mean, if, if we didn't, we could be making far more money doing something else. Um, usually the way I would handle that is just say, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. Um, here's, you know, let me explain why each charge is on here and why we need to do that thing. Um, if that is not an am- amount of money that you can spend today, that's okay. We can, we can kind of whittle down the pieces that are the most important and we can do those. So then, you know, what, what if I make you a treatment plan for doing X, Y, and Z tooth removal instead of, you know, taking out 10 teeth? Is that something you can do? And kind of try and work with them to see um, if there's something that they can do that will make them feel like they're at least helping and also make sure they don't feel judged for not having the money. I think sometimes it stresses people out because they're like, oh, they're going to think that I'm this horrible person because I don't have the money to take care of my pet, which isn't true. We just want an honest, straightforward conversation you know, what, how, what can I do to help you? If there's a number we can to get it down below, is that what you can do for your pet? And if so, that's great. We'll do that. You know, just, just let us know. <laughs> yeah. You know, and what's interesting is I have experienced, I think, you know, I've, I've had a conversation with our vet and I've, I've known him for a long time and he, he's an amazing guy. Like he, he is really a gentle soul. And one of the reasons I love that med, like he's kind of the prototypical vet that's just like so empathetic and just really a great human being. But at the end, as I mentioned, one of our other dogs, he was getting older and he had some, you know, like a liver mass and he had all these other issues. And in our conversations, like not to say that price wasn't ever important, but I was always just kind of like, generally the cost of a lot of things we need to do. I, I went luckily enough to be in a financial position where we could say, yeah, let's do it. Whatever we need to do, you tell us what we need to do and we'll do it. Um, you know, cause generally we're talking at the most a few thousand dollars if we had to do a whole bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting cause he'd always be like, well, you know, I feel like we should do this blood panel, but if we do this other one, it's a little bit cheaper. And I'm always like, Hey, look, like you just tell me what we want. If the other one's better, you know, we're talking a hundred bucks here. That's fine. Like, let's do it. Let's just make sure it happens. And, I think it took like having this conversation and getting involved in the industry to realize like the position that he's coming from, because he's likely having these conversations, you know, he's having these conversations on the daily and then trying to be empathetic to that and be like, no, look, I trust you. We can figure it out. Ironically though, at the end, towards the end of our dog's life, we think he, we think he had a brain tumor because he was having these really bad seizures and the last 48 hours were just really terrible. But the one thing they're like, well, we can do an MRI, but it's going to be $4,000, you know? And they're like, but that doesn't guarantee we're, we'll just know for sure if it's a brain tumor or if it's something in a spinal cord. And it was tough because at that point, like I wanted to know if there was something we could do, but he had gone kind of paralyzed from the neck down. We knew it was, there wasn't anything was we can do, but it was, it was this position where I'm like, well, four grand is a lot of money. Right. And we're basically going to spend four grand just to know. And I don't know that the outcome is going to be any different, but it was still a very hard decision to make as a pet parent, right? To be there and be like, I do want to know if there's another option, but yet $4,000 is a lot of money. And it's a 16 year old dog with heart issues Mm -hmm. and a liver mass. And he probably has a brain tumor and he's paralyzed now. So is it going to make a difference? You know, and then even in that situation, like today, like to this day, I still kind of feel bad sometimes. Yeah, I don't think you need to. I mean, there there is a point, and I I have the same problem. I I want to know, you know, I I'm a doctor. I I want to know why things happen. I want to know what's going on. But you know, when it gets to a certain point, and everyone has their own individual point, you know, what level of discomfort for the pet, what level of of cost, um, everyone has to kind of break that down for themselves, you know, and and it's based on a lot of things like what that pet means to you and just what your financial situation is. And so um, it's a very individual thing. And I don't think any of us are really in a place to judge what anyone else can do for their pets. And when it comes to, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's, do I want to know 
why, why, you know, is it going to be helpful? Is it going to suggest a new treatment plan or do I just want to know for the heck of it? And is it worth putting my dog through something when it's just really more for me to know the answer than it is for helping the dog? Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a very valid point. Like even thinking about my own experiences, because it was like, we'd have to, he'd have to be sedated to go through the MRI. There's, you know, he was already having, he had renal issues. So it was like, was the risk really going to be worth it? You're right. So there's like these whole, yeah. Yeah. And so it was like, would it be worth it anyways? And, but then you still like, it is hard. I mean, you're just still like, be making it purely on a financial decision. I mean, I mean, we have, um, pet insurance and stuff now. So, um, and pet insurance has gotten a lot better. Ironically, we had pet insurance early on, but it just like, it didn't cover anything. It was really expensive. And we're like, we might as well just save the money, but now it's gotten quite a bit better. But, um, yeah, it it is a very, it's a difficult situation. I think for, for both the veterinarian and the pet parent, and it really does take a unique skill set to develop you know, to learn how to manage that conversation and deal, mm-hmm. deal with those difficult conversations. So, so let's talk we, about, Oh, good. Oh, I was just going to say, we do want to um, kind of the teachings nowadays are, you know, start out with the gold standard. This is what I would do. You know, if I was in academia, this is what I would do for your pet and it would lead us to the best place to get a diagnosis. You don't, you don't want to assume that people aren't going to be able to pay for things because that's not fair to them. Um, you never know who's going to want to come in and want the absolute gold standard or, you know, somebody comes in with their Prada purse and their Chihuahua all dressed in Martha Stewart clothes and they don't want to pay for a single test. <laughs> so you can't, you can't underestimate people. You have to give everyone the same, you know, this is the treatment plan I would give for any dog in this situation and then, you know, work with them from there. But, but don't, uh, don't underestimate people and don't sell them short. Yeah, that's a great uh, conversation. And there's a great story I heard from a doctor in Canada, Dr. Joel Parker, when he first uh, purchased his practice, he had a guy come in that looked real rough. You know, he's like, real dirty. And the dog was real dirty and kind of matted. And he's like, man, something's going on with my dog. I went to this other vet and they gave me like this antibiotics, but I just feel like there's something else going on. And it turned out there was, if I remember the story correctly, it turned out there was something major going on with her intestines and she kind of needed emergency surgery to fix, but it was totally fixable. And he's like, we, yeah, we need to do this, but it's going to be like, you know, $3,000, $3,500. And the guy's like, well, whatever, just let's do it. Turns out the guy comes back for his recheck, completely different, completely clean cut, shows up in like this fancy Porsche, the dog's all clean. Turns out he owned a massive, he owns like a big coffee chain in Canada. And him and his dog just like went on this like two month kind of like sabbatical for lack of a term where they were just like backpacking. So mm-hmm. they had just come back from this trip and hence the reason he kind of looked like a bum because, you know, <laughs> and so it is like, you can never really judge a book by a cover. Here was a guy who was willing to pay what he had plenty of money, whatever it would take to do, he was willing to do it. And this other, this other hospital kind of had taken that approach. Like, uh, he's not gonna be able to afford any addition. Here's some antibiotics. Let us know if things get better. And yet he was willing to do whatever. So I think you're right. Like never judge a book by its cover. So now from there you get into now you've kind of got into, I think you're still with under, with under the Banfield umbrella or the Mars umbrella. Is that correct? The Mars umbrella still. Yeah. yeah. And now you've kind of got into genetics. So tell us a little bit about how you made that transition and that change. Well, um, genetics has always been something I've been interested in. I did a little bit of undergrad research with one of my professors in genetics and, um, when I was starting to look for things outside the hospital, I had um, our field director at the time, our medical director at Banfield, um, knew um, Angela Hughes, who used to work for us. And um, she's, we had a meeting that we set up where we just kind of chatted about, you know, what I was interested in doing and what wisdom health was like and um, any jobs that might open up in the future. And um, so then a few months later, when the, job did open up and she called me and I applied for that. And then I've been working at Wisdom Health ever since, um, doing a number of different things. We all wear a number of hats here because it's traditionally been a pretty small startup sized company. Um, things are getting a little different now where, uh, we're getting bigger, um, because we're just getting busier and busier 
Um, and we're now part of kinship, which is a different part of Mars as opposed to Mars Pet Care, which is what we were under before. It's all very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you get a company that size, I mean, it's just, yeah, from candy bars to pets, right? Um, yeah, it can get complicated. The org, the org chart can be very complicated. Very so, yeah, so tell us about, I mean, what does Wisdom Health do? Like, um, are you serving the veterinarian community? Are you serving the pet parent community? What does that look like? We are serving everybody. So we, um, our test is used by all Banfield veterinarians. So every puppy that gets enrolled on their wellness plan gets one of our tests. So this is good in a few different ways. And one of my soapboxes, I'll try not to get on too hard, but <laughs> so we're testing these puppies before they have their spay or neuter surgery when they're just young. Um, and we're getting results like, you know, hey, maybe this puppy has Von Willebrand's disease. Maybe this puppy has MDR1. So we need to switch up the medications we're going to use for the neuter. Um, you know, maybe we need to do some clotting time tests before we do something like a spay or a neuter to make sure that the dog isn't going to bleed out. Um, so things like that that can inform just even the simplest of procedures that we didn't have access to before. So like when I was in practice, I remember um, having dogs and cats sometimes that they just, you know, they, they didn't recover as quickly from anesthesia as you felt like they should. And they, you know, when you would see them at their recheck, the owners would be like, geez, doc, you know, he didn't feel good for about four days. And you're thinking, I wonder why that is. Cause usually they bounce back the next day. Um, so a lot of these dogs probably had MDR1 and we didn't know because it wasn't routinely tested for unless it was specifically like a collie or something like that. Okay. So interesting question for you now that you're involved in the genetic side. One thing that I've heard a lot, like when looking and talking about how genetics work and how they play a role, it seems I've heard this concept that genetics are a set of instructions but sometimes it takes environmental factors for those instructions to be utilized within the body. So you may have some genetic code that could code for some defect like in a pet, but sometimes it takes an environmental condition outside to kind of engage that, that code set. Is it, am I off base here? Am I on, kind of on track here with my limited scientific? No, knowledge? no, it's, you're right. It's, it's like the kind of classic nature versus nurture thing. Um, you know, what, what pieces are genetic and what pieces are environmental and, um, some of the genetic mutations that we know of right now, we think there are envir environmental triggers. A lot of times we don't necessarily know what those are. Um, so that's kind of a more difficult piece. Um, but we try, we try in our reporting to, um, to show that a little bit. So we'll say, you know, the likelihood of, of your dog that has two copies of this disease actually having clinical signs from this disease. Um, in this disease, the, the likelihood is pretty low. In this other disease, the likelihood is high. They will probably show clinical signs at some point during their lifespan. So we try to, um, give them at least a category that they're looking at that, that can help them a little bit thinking through um, what they need to be prepared for. Um, we also um, have recently started doing something called, uh, we call them vet calls internally, but um, essentially it's for anyone who has um, purchased one of our premium tests and has a positive mutation. They are um, able to schedule a call with one of our veterinarians to talk about the mutation and the significance in their pets. So I think a lot of people have really appreciated that. Yeah. Interesting. I was actually, uh, before a call, I was looking at your website and I was like, Oh, I want this. And I was like, and then I saw that like a call with a veterinarian. So I wasn't sure if it was just like to go through all the genetic tests or what it was. So is, are you handling a lot of those calls or what's your day-to-day -day like life? like at wisdom panel, yeah. right? Wisdom panel. I, you know, I do a lot of things we, yeah, I usually have at least one vet call a day. Um, there's two other vets on my same team that, um, so we kind of round robin the vet calls and, um, I've been doing a lot of writing, uh, writing some blog posts and things like that, working on a, a paper that we're hoping to submit for publication pretty soon. And then we're going to be um, starting another paper, which I'm really excited about. So um, that should be fun. And just kind of working on a, a variety of different projects with um, some with 
you know, internal people, some with people from universities to try and um, further the field of genetics and see what new discoveries we can make. Yeah. So last time we were talking, we had talked before and we were talking a lot about like accuracy of the tests and you guys had some new results that weren't quite released yet that we couldn't talk about. And so now there's some like some stuff has kind of come to the forefront that's really exciting for you and that you can kind of openly talk about. So um, can you maybe share with me because I'm kind of curious as to what those are. Yeah, so we developed over the last couple of years, we developed a new um, dog breed detection system. And um, we actually gathered <laughs> gathered scientists from 23andMe and Ancestry and uh, stole them for our own nefarious purposes. <laughs> and then um, they built this amazing new breed detection system. It's 90 8% accurate, over 98%, I should say, um, in controlled tests on purebreds and up to four times less error than the industry standard for really, really mixed samples. Um, so since we already have the largest database and the most number of dog breeds that we test for, this new algorithm is just going to, it's going to be, it's going to be a huge difference. It lets us get really specific down to 1%. Um, in the ancestry and do that really accurately. And also we have it set up. There's um, machine learning components so that it's only going to continue getting better as we bring more and more dogs that get tested and, and more and more um, breeds in our database. I, and I don't know if, I don't know if this is something you can talk about because I haven't, haven't asked you this before, but can you share with us how, roughly how many tests you guys have run thus far? We are at about, Two million and seven hundred and fifty thousand or so. A lot. That's a lot. What I, I thought you were going to say like I thought you were going to say like twenty, thirty thousand, forty thousand. No, we've man, been in this dude, game for that's a long insane. Time. That's crazy. I mean, that is a massive <laughs> data set. Wow, that's crazy. Okay, so another interesting question. I don't know if you know this, but I've always been fascinated about that. I've really been fascinated about, but I've never understood how the heck do you actually like decode the DNA? Like what is the mechanical process to actually understand what the, what your gene coding is? Oh man, I'm, I'm not sure if I can put that in simplistic enough terms. Um, for a lot of projects nowadays, things are, the technology is good enough that we can run um, what we call it a GWAS. So it's a genome wide association study. Um, so you can take data at, at, um, through, throughout the entire genome and, um, see if it correlates with a particular disorder. And oftentimes you start out kind of having some candidate regions that you think where it might be, um, that, that are ones that you look into a little bit more closely. Um, and then through that, we can get an idea if there's if there appears to be any correlations and we can dive deeper into those. But I don't, I don't think I can speak to that much more. Like that. <laughs> That's OK. Yeah. Having our, our bioinformaticians get yeah. at it. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. Yeah. And also, you have to keep it super lame in terms for people like myself. So but I've always been interested. I mean, I guess the other question I have for you is like DNA is like it's like a string of proteins. Right. And like we're kind of reading the proteins that are strung together. Is that what DNA is? It gets, yeah, I mean, it, there's there's a certain number of steps that gets transformed into amino acids, and then the amino acids make up the proteins that are the ones that do things. Okay, so you have so I guess this is my other question. So you have these this like string of like proteins in this like helix that's insanely, insanely small. So how is like how do like the machines or like how is it how is it that it's able to like you know, because I imagine, you know, you imagine like a, a guy or a gal or whoever just looking through this insane microscope, looking at like, okay, there's an A, there's a G, you know, there's a C. <laughs> so how is it like, how are we able to like read those proteins? Is this like proprietary equipment that's been developed or how to like, I'm, I'm fascinated about how is it able to read something so small? Yeah, there's... um the information that we collect after the DNA is extracted, it gets run on a chip. It's called an Illumina chip, and it's um, one that we have made standard for our team. Um, and then once the chip goes through processing, there's um, machines that 
that read it and send that data to a computer. And then the, the data that we get from the lab is very much here are the SNPs. And then our computer um, takes it and runs with it and, and does the breed calls and looks at the mutation results. Yeah, I wrote a, I read a book a long time ago uh, by Francis Collins. Does that name ring a bell? He was like one of the scientists to first decode the human genome. And okay. to, to listen to him talk about that, that exploration process and what that meant and then all the impacts that just like had on his overall life and like being able to kind of see the instruction set of humans was like, it was really fascinating, fascinating read. But ever since then, I'm always like, you know, you see these like pictures, like on the commercials when it's like 23 me, whatever. And this person's got this big plastic, <laughs> almost like syringe looking thing. And I'm like, how are you reading this like microscopic thing from the, I don't know. It's yeah, it's really, it's really fascinating. I mean, I guess, for somebody who uses and works on computers and technologies, you know, every day. And I'm like, oh, well, I understand, like, you know, processors basically breaking the machine language down into ones and zeros, and then it's moving different capacitors and stuff. And so it all makes sense logically. But then I'm like, when it comes to this DNA thing, I'm like, I don't know. It's fascinating, but yeah, to know how it works. So is, is there anything new and exciting that you're also you're working on that you can talk about that you kind of want to share that and get out there? Um. Just that, um, so with our new breed classifier, um, everybody who submits a test after July 13th is going to be getting those new results. So that should be really cool for people. Um, at some point, we're going to go back and um, release new results for people that have tested on the same chip but haven't gotten the new results. Um, and I, we're really looking forward to having the, the amount of information that we'll be gathering now from these tests, as well as the way that um, the breed classifier was designed. Um, and I don't want to get, I'll get into the weeds if I try and talk too much about that, but basically what it means is that um, it's going to just be easier and easier for us to do studies that can hopefully help dogs and cats further on down the road. Um, so that's what I'm really excited about. I, I love the discovery piece and I love, you know, if we can do something that makes a difference for the pets. Um, so that's, that's what I'm really excited about. And I think people will really like the, the new ancestry because it's a lot more, um, it's a lot more accurate than anything out there. And it's, it's just a lot more fun, I think, for, for people to see everything broken down to 1%. So yeah, that's awesome. Good. Well, this last, this last five minutes is kind of your personal soapbox. Is there anything, you know, how, where can people find out more about wisdom panel? Are there any specials coming up or any, anything you kind of want to let people know about or for the, especially for all the veterinarians that are listening, is there something that you kind of want to share with them that they should be aware of that maybe they should start leveraging in their practice? Um, yeah, wisdom panel is available, um, through veterinary hospitals, um, Banfield. Like I said, all the Banfields have them. Um, some hospitals have RC and, um, Royal Canaan, and then those hospitals can order the test as well. Um, we also have direct to consumer, so people can buy them from our site if they would like to. Um, so. It's, it's pretty easy to get your hands on one, very easy to do. It's just a couple swabs in the mouth, not a big deal. Um, there's lots of education to be had on our blog. So just on our website, you scroll down to blog and, and click on that. There's lots of good reading. Um, there's our, uh, our white paper on this. We have a blog post on the new technology um, and also on, you know, lots of other fun genetics and non-genetics related topics so that's that's kind of a, a good place to start looking if if people are interested okay so one last question do you work do anything on the cat side of genetics too or you were are you doing both dog and cat we are yes we are did you, did you have something else? yeah so so i have a question yeah so i had <clears throat> talked so a couple of years ago i was there was another there's a cat specific genetic company at BIS, uh, the Veterinary Innovation Summit at Texas A&M. And I was talking with the guy who was there at the booth and I was like, he's, he at the time, I mean, you've run 2 million tests. So, you, you know, you probably have a lot more data than, than they did. But at the time I was like, Oh, interesting. I was like, well, you know, where do cats come from? Like, what is this? And he said that on the cat side, like we're still kind of like, 
at least at the time, this was a couple of years ago. So who knows now, but um, you know, he's like, we're still kind of figuring that out. And he's like, cats seem to be difficult because it's like cats kind of allowed us to live with them. We never really like domesticated them. Is there any truth to that? And what do we know about cats? A lot of it is because, you know, a lot of these dog breeds have been around for thousands of years. So when we're selectively breeding all these breeds in different directions, they're going to breed much more true. Um, cats, the pedigreed cats have known, only been around for, you know, what, 100 years or so, and um, usually are based around some sort of trait, like curled ears in a certain breed or, you know, the Persians with the squishy face. And um, they just don't have the the clarity between the snips for <clears throat> that indicate certain breeds. It's just not as clear, <clears throat> and it's not as easy to determine um, one breed from another breed. Not to mention, there's also a lot of cats that are just you know domestic short hair because that's what cats are. A lot of <laughs> um, yeah. So it's a little bit trickier. But we we've had a a cat test designed for breeders for about 10 years now. Um, and we've been doing, you know, mutation tests for the cats, making sure that they can breed away from anything nasty. And actually we've seen that some populations are doing an excellent job of breeding away from the, the nasty diseases in their breeds. So that's been really great. And then just recently we launched our direct to consumer cat products that has, it still has those mutations, but has ancestry as well. So kind of another fun piece for, uh, knowing a little bit of Mr. Kitty's extra background. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Sorry. I thought I was done with my questions, but then I was starting to think about this cat thing. Well, thank you so much for taking time again to chat with me. It was really fascinating to kind of learn your story from, you know, dog lover to exotic to working at a zoo to small animal practice to now genetics. I mean, yeah, kind of quite, quite the, quite the job history there. It, it, it's really fascinating. So thank you again for taking time to chat with me today. Yeah. Thank you, Clint. I enjoyed it. Yeah. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.